left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. So the only purpose in refinancing was to find more real estate. And then I became obsessed. And I want every one of your listeners to know, because this is very important, even when I bought my second property, all my friends, not all my family, but a lot of family members, everybody was telling me, what are you doing? There's so much more money to make in the stock market. Why would you buy a property and put $100,000 down and you make eight, $900 a month? And you have to be able to overcome that obstacle because people really want to tell you no quite a bit. All those people tell me how smart I am today though, by the way. Hey, Lovefielders, this is Julian McClurkin from Tribe Vest. I recently had the pleasure of sitting down with Jim Pfeiffer for a masterclass. I learned so much from passive investing to real estate syndications to how you can diversify your portfolio with a tribe. I also learned how this form of passive investing was only available to the wealthy until recently. If I learned a lot, you will too. Go to leftfieldinvestors.com and check out the masterclass button at the top or look up Tribe Vest on YouTube. I'll see you there. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the Left Field community. This is Paul Shannon from Red Hawk Real Estate, and you're listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field Podcast. I'm very excited today to have Todd Napola with us. He is president and founder of the Current Capital Group. He comes from a long line of real estate investors in his family, and he's currently focusing on retail industrial real estate. So Todd, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field Podcast. Well, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. So the first question I typically ask is, What's your financial journey? How did you get into real estate? How did you get into syndications? I know you have history of real estate in your family. So how did that affect you and how did you get into where you are now? All right. Well, I'll make the story as quick as I can. In a nutshell, my grandfather was a surgeon and he passively invested in real estate and did very well. And my father was an engineer by trade and he passively invested did well. So when I graduated college, I was starting to work as investment banking and stockbroker. And I really enjoyed it, but you lived and died on a trade and a commission. And I looked at what these guys were doing in passive investing in real estate and said, I want to be more active than that, but I want to invest in real estate. And I started investing in real estate in 1998, bought my first building and still have it to this day. And in 2000, when the tech bubble burst, I was not making any more money as a stockbroker. So I decided to shift permanently into just only doing commercial real estate. You were a stockbroker. How did you make that transition. I was a financial advisor and I realized that I wasn't able to help my clients with the paper assets. I started believing more in the real assets and that's kind of what gave me my transition. So how did that transition go for you? Yeah, it's an excellent question. It's almost kind of like what you just said is that I truly was buying and selling stocks, but I realized it wasn't that I was good. It was more that I was lucky. I mean, back then, everything that said .com after just went up, kind of like we had in cryptocurrencies the last couple of years. And people started to fool themselves that they were geniuses. But when you looked at the earnings, you realized these companies had nothing but hype behind them. And it wasn't sustainable. 
So I also fell in love with real estate because I said, it's not as glorified. It doesn't get you instantaneous riches, but it's consistent every single month. If you're expecting this cash flow, it usually comes in roughly in that area. And it's real. You could touch it. You could feel it. You could go to it. You could visit it. I'm not welcome at the Microsoft headquarters, but I am welcome at my properties. What was the first thing you did? So you're done with being a stockbroker. You jumped into real estate. Were you buying single families? Were you flipping? Were you buying? Now you're in retail and industrial. How did you start? All right. So when I was still a stockbroker at the time, it was 1998, June of 98. And back then it was the end of the savings and loan crisis. And banks were just trying to unload any property they could from that transfer. And I was able to buy my first property with 50% down. It was a warehouse because back then you could buy warehouses. And believe it or not, it was on a very busy street in South Florida. And it was literally a for sign sale on it. And I drove by and I called the for sign sale. And I guess nobody else wanted it. And I was the lucky or unlucky guy who got it at the time. And I always tell people it's funny because I was 25 years old at that point, actually. And I go to a real estate closing with all these smart people from lawyers and banks and everybody. And they're all telling me I'm crazy. What the hell did I do? Who's buying real estate now? And I said, uh-oh, I got to figure this out quickly. And you know what? I just jumped right in. I started figuring out, you know how you do a lease? I went to Office Depot and I bought a package leases that were for sale for a few bucks. That was a template for how you rent property. I hired a guy to help me clean the property up. I started talking to all the tenants. I went and opened up a bank account. I just ingratiated myself right into real estate and trial and error, I figured it out. But six months after I bought that property, I bought it in June. I paid five seventy-five. In six months, there was seven units. I leased the four that were vacant, but leases for all seven tenants at that point in time. We have a cash flow positive. And in six months, I refinanced it for $600,000. It appraised for $800,000. And after all was said and done, I got all my money back plus my closing costs. I got a check for like three, four thousand bucks. And every month I was getting five thousand bucks a month. So I knew I had something good and I kept going from there. That's amazing. I guess the real question is, I've never heard of anybody who started out with an industrial property. Most of us start out with a single family home, maybe a quad or an Airbnb or something like that. So what was it about that property that made you think, yeah, I guess I'm going to go buy an industrial property? I never really got into the multifamily at that point. I was, like I said, a young guy, but I would drive by this building all the time. And it was a new building. A developer bought the land and developed it. And I didn't know the exact math, but I said, this guy definitely spent at least a million two on buying the land and developing this beautiful building, but he never got out of his own way. Either he had too much leverage or whatever it may be. I didn't know who the developer was, but I said, how stupid could I be to buy this building? It was a beautiful, spectacular, brand new warehouse. When I bought it, it was only two, three years old. So I said, how stupid could you be? So I figured I'd give it a shot. And sometimes being young and naive and having a second source of income or a first source of income, I'd say it'll let you take a little bit more risk and get into the game. And so where did you go after that? So you had a massive success on the first property. Did you just start driving all over South Florida and buying all the industrial properties up? What was your next step? I went literally about half a mile up the street and I found another for sale sign from a gentleman who owned the property for many, many years. I think he owned it for like 30 years and he had moved to Connecticut from South Florida. And I still remember his name, George Zartolis, great guy. And the property was like, just like in shambles. And I said, I could buy this property. This was an older property. And I could redo the front, paint it, clean it. I already knew how to do it. So I bought it. I went to the city. I got some of the zonings changed because now you're going back. This is now 1999. So getting zoning changes was just like signing of a paper. It's not like it is today. So I was able to move some of the tenants around, reposition that one. And I still own that property to this day too. And then I just started saying, this is a lot of fun. And between the first one and the second one, I had enough cash flow coming. And I said, I'm only going to use my real estate money to keep buying more real estate. So the only purpose in refinancing was to buy more real estate. And then I became obsessed. 
And I want every one of your listeners to know, because this is very important, even when I bought my second property, all my friends, not all my family, but a lot of family members, everybody was telling me, what are you doing? There's so much more money to make in the stock market. Why would you buy a property and put $100,000 down and you make eight, $900 a month? And you have to be able to overcome that obstacle because people really want to tell you no quite a bit. All those people tell me how smart I am today, though, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they do. So you just keep buying industrial properties? Is that how you grew and got to where you are now in, in the industrial space? Yeah. So my first few properties back in those days, you could buy industrial. I was buying a lot of industrial. Retail was a lot hotter back then than it is now. So the retail stuff was going quicker, but people didn't want to have the mechanic shops or the AC refrigeration guy with his truck. So they weren't as desirable. So I was buying comparable properties on comparable streets. I was always on busy streets for like a third or a half the price that these guys are paying for retail. So at that point, industrial was cheap. But to give you an example, in the last two years, we purchased two and a half years we purchased almost 700,000 square feet of real estate, maybe 750. And out of that, 10,000 square feet is industrial because now you cannot get industrial square feet. Now it's only retail. And why is that? What changed? I'm going to say it has a lot to do with the media and the news that everybody wants to get the hottest asset class. And apartments just became virtually untouchable. But warehouses, people spec building warehouses, they were faster to produce. And there was that story that retail was dead a few years ago and Amazon was going to put everybody out of business. So nobody wanted to touch retail. Now, when COVID hit, nobody really wanted to go near retail. And then everyone said, no one's ever going to go to a retail store again. They're only going to drop ship stuff out of a warehouse. So from what I see, nationwide warehouses are just virtually untouchable. So now you're more focused on the retail, correct? What type of retail are we talking about? All right. So our retail is all the class B, class C centers. So when you think of the pristine, gorgeous center that has Gucci and Louis Vuitton, not us. When you think of the class A perfect grocery anchored center with Chipotle and Starbucks, still not us. We come down a tier. We're specializing in the dollar general centers, the family dollar centers, the auto zones. Our typical tenants are a chiropractor, a dentist, an insurance agent. So a lot of things that are required to be have office space that need customers to come in and out. Even though they call it retail, not a lot of retail experience where you're going to walk store and go shopping. It's either a gym, chiropractor, like I said, things you need. You're in and out to go grab and what type of returns do you usually get on, are you seeing currently in, in those type of assets? That's another great question because I don't go in when I buy properties and concern myself exactly what the cap rate is. And people focus on this is the cap rate, this is the numbers. And I have a lot of smart people that I'm lucky to work with. And I have these young guys walk in and they'll give me a 10-year Argus schedule, which I can't even understand. It's algebra to me. And I try to explain <laughs> to them that that's not how real estate is done. And now my famous line that I use all the time in the office when they show me, I said, Show me where the pandemic hits in this 10 years. So you just don't know. So when I go into real estate, I'm looking to see my gut tell me I believe about this and do I believe I can add value to it? That's why I said, I don't own the Chipotle's or the Starbucks because what could I do there to add any value? But yet when I buy these B and C centers, we can modernize and do a facade renovation to the front. We could move tenants around to make it a better experience for them. Some buildings come, the roofs are shot, so no tenants want to move in. We replace roofs. So if we could do things to add value, that's what we look for. The cap rate going in is not as important. What's the upside then on these? Do you still own your first two investments? So are you buy and hold forever? Or do you still sell some of these assets? And who do you sell them to if you do? I don't like to sell. I do think of them as when I buy them, I go in for my timeline is the rest of my life. But I don't fall in love where I won't sell. So if the deal is just too good to be true, I'm going to sell them because it is just a piece of property. But generally, I don't sell. I give you an idea. We bought a property 
in January of 2020, I guess two months before the lockdown, and it was a beautiful retail with flex property in the back right on the Florida Turnpike in Port St. Lucie, and we bought it for $14 million. And it wasn't a great deal when we bought it. It was a 7% cap at best. And we knew some of the tenants were underpaying. We knew we could bring some of the tenants we knew in. We knew we had to redo some leases, and it was a great property. We had that property for two years, and this summer we refinanced it in a praise for $29 million, and we pulled out our entire $14 million. So the banks won't let me take out anything above what I pay for it, so my closing costs and still I can't recoup. But now I have all that money out, and then we take that money out, and my clients and I, we go reinvest it. So just yesterday, actually Monday, we closed on another deal for $25 million, similar situation. It'll be a lease-up deal. When passive investors are looking at deals such as this, what are some metrics in the retail space? Because in left-field investors, we have tools that help us figure out how to analyze a multifamily deal, because that's what we mostly see, and even self-storage and things like that. But how do you analyze as a passive investor a retail investment to decide yeah, this is the right investment for me or not? Great question. Where multifamily and self-storage has a massive edge is the leases, you could change them. They adjust every year, generally at one-year leases. When you get into an investment property that's commercial related with retail centers or industrial, these guys have long-term leases. Typical lease is going to have at least three or four or five years left of term. And as you get into better tenants, be it the Dollar Generals or Advanced Auto Parts, these guys kept 20, 30 years of term with options. That's great when you buy a property and the banks love to see it, but I have news for you. I've been doing this long enough to know when things aren't great, they're the first guys to get on the phone with you and say, well, now we're not going to pay that anymore. So you do have a limited upside. And when rents skyrocketed for multifamily, we didn't get that luxury in commercial because we were locked into leases. We only have the risk on the downside. So it's a little bit more complicated. You really got to kind of know what you're going into and the investor has to believe in the property and more so believe in the sponsor. If you don't believe in the sponsor, get out of the way. But It's a little bit trickier, yeah. How do investors believe in the sponsor? That's one of our main focuses at Left Field Investors is helping people vet sponsors and figure out if sponsors are someone they want to invest in. So what would you say, how does a passive investor vet someone like you and figure out if they're someone that we want to invest with? That's fantastic because I'll tell you, with us, the way we do it is we invest alongside our investors. So not only am I asking clients to put up money and investors to join me in a deal, We put up money. And in every single deal I've done, I put up more money than any individual investor does. So that's part one. Part two is, is the person that's going to be the sponsor, are they going to be operating it or are they just kicking it off to a manager or someone out in left field? We lease, we manage, we do everything ourselves in-house. So we have a strong edge. So if that's the case, look at the sponsor and say, are they running their portfolio well? What is their track record? Google them. Find out who they are. Don't just invest in a deal. You need to know, did they have a murky track record in 08 and 09 when things got bad? Did they just give everything back to the bank? Or did they tough it out and make it through? And in addition to that, one thing that makes us a little bit different that I think truthfully every sponsor should do is when I put money into a deal, that is the first, not all my money, I put whatever amount I agree to with my partners, that is the first risk stack. And what I mean by that is my money goes ahead of yours. It's treated the exact same way, but if God forbid there's a loss, I'm going to lose 100% of my money before you lose penny one. That really shows investors that you believe in the product. So those are the kind of things you want to believe in. And you also want to have a sponsor that you could reach. My clients, my investors, they could call me anytime. They could text me anytime. They could email me. If they want to come to my office and sit down and discuss a lease, generally don't. But if they ever did, it's available. If they want to come to the property and meet me, it's available. You don't want to work with the sponsor that's so far removed from you that you're just hoping for a check. For that, you should buy a REIT. 
Yeah, that makes sense. So are you mostly operating in Florida still, or have you branched out to other markets as well? Nope. We only stay in the state of Florida. My rule of thumb is that I want to be able to drive to my properties and come home in the same day. And that way I have another edge because I know my Florida market. So we lease and manage properties from South Florida up to Jacksonville and only along the East Coast. So I could get to a property in an early morning and be home for dinner with my wife and kids that night. If I have to start leaving the state and going to Atlanta or the Carolinas or whatever, I have no more edge. And if I have to get on a plane to visit a property, I'm probably not your best sponsor at that point because I'm too far removed from the property. But like I said, the properties we bought on Monday, they're a 12-minute ride from my office with no traffic. So I'm pretty close. If there's a problem, I got your property covered. But if we have a problem at our property in Minnesota, I might not get out there for three days. And so these leases that you have with the on the retail side, are these triple net leases? And if so, can you explain exactly what that means? Absolutely. So yes and no. Some tenants, for example, we just renegotiated a lease for the state of Florida. They'll only do a gross lease because their budget doesn't allow them to have triple net. But 90 plus percent of our leases would be triple net. What triple net essentially means is the tenant's paying two parts of rent. And one part is the base rent dollars, which is entirely your cash flow income. And the rest is they're covering their pro rata share of the expenses. So to make it simple, if the property was 10,000 square feet and this tenant was 1,000 square feet, they're responsible for 10% of the expenses, whether they go up or down each year. And that's the real estate taxes, the property insurance, the common area maintenance, the landscaper, the property management fees. So they pay one-tenth of that. And that's fantastic because when you have that in a lease, it allows you to protect yourself if the expenses go up. Where it really hurts you is if you lose tenants. So if you only have five tenants, 5,000 square feet occupied in a 10,000 square feet building, the landlord has to cover the other 5,000 square feet. Those expenses still have to be paid. They're fixed. Interesting. So on a fully rented out property, then would you say that having these triple net lease that would protect you from some of the aspects of the inflation that we're seeing because the rising costs are mostly covered by your tenants? Does that compensate then for the long-term nature of these leases where maybe you're not getting rent increases like you would if it was a new tenant coming in? Yeah, 1,000%. That's exactly why it's in place because the apartment investors, they got the edge that leases are generally 12 months or less so you can control it. But when I have a lease, let's say even do a five-year lease, we do all leases where the base rent will increase the greater of 4% or CPI. So this year, we've had a lot of leases that increased 9% year over year, which still didn't keep up with some of the bumps I've seen. But the expenses will be what they are. We don't make any money on the expenses. So we give a CAM reconciliation report. These are the expenses, and you pay your pro rata share divided over 12 months. So if it's going to be $12,000 each month, you'll be sending me $1,000 towards your expenses. And this way, I'm protected if taxes go up or insurance goes up. What about costs that can't be split? They're specific to one unit, maybe there was damage at a property or something like that, or is that for the tenant to pay or do you pay that as well? No, that's a landlord responsibility. If there's damage or something, the only thing the tenant's responsible for are the expenses to operate the building. So if tenant number two has an AC go bad, that is not shared by all tenants. That's the landlord's problem or the tenant's problem, depending on the lease. They're only paying the operational expenses of that property. Okay. So if you're an investor, a passive investor in this, you need to look into what exactly triple net means, because in some cases, as you said, it could mean the landlord is paying for the AC unit or the water heater that goes bad. But in other cases, it could be the tenant. Correct. And if you're a tenant looking to rent space, that's something you better familiarize yourself with before you sign the lease, because 
I've heard a lot of people come up to me and say, I signed this lease, but I didn't realize I was responsible for the AC. And then all of a sudden I found out the AC was nine years old. Well, like buying a house just as a tenant, just because you're signing a lease, you're not leasing a car from Enterprise Rent-A-Car for the week. You have to really do your due diligence and read the whole lease to know what your obligations are. This is Zach Hapsensall, CEO and co-founder of Rise48 Equity. At Rise48, we've completed over $1.7 billion in total transactions, including 11 successful full-cycle dispositions. If you're looking to invest with an experienced sponsor in either the Phoenix, Arizona, or Dallas, Texas markets, then set up a call with us today at rise48equity.com backslash invest. That's R-I-S-E 48 equity.com backslash invest. Aspen Funds has been a consistent supporter of left-field investors. You may have seen Bob Frazier on an LFI webinar or at our October meetup in the left field speaking on investable megatrends for the next decade. Whether you're an accredited investor interested in mortgage note funds with a 10-year track record or other macro-driven alternative investments such as industrial, oil and gas, multifamily or retail, the Aspen Funds team is keeping track of the economic trends and co-invests on every deal right alongside you. Meanwhile, you get to do what you love and make every moment count. Download their free economic report today at aspenfunds.us slash LFI. Now, you said that industrial is untouchable right now. What do you mean by that? You could find industrial properties here in South Florida right now that people are trying to buy so badly that I'm telling you they're sub four caps. They make absolutely no economic sense whatsoever, but people just want to buy it. Again, because I only really focus in the state of Florida, primarily the South Florida part, there's so much money that came to this state, be it because of COVID lockdown or good government or whatever you want to call it. There's so much wealth here that people just think that this is what's in style. This is what they want to buy. So I'm competing with the guy from, I don't know, Brazil who just sold his company for $50 million who just wants to park money in America. Years ago, he just wanted to buy a couple of condos. He's now gotten smarter and said, now I'd like to buy an industrial warehouse because that's what everybody tells me I should buy. So as an investor, it's very, very challenging to make money on these deals. And unless you're Blackstone and your cost of capital is virtually nothing, an investor such as myself, I can't do a deal and get a 4%, 5% return. It just doesn't make any sense. So does that mean you still have industrial properties? Are you selling those to take advantage of the market or are you just holding them and letting them cash flow? Because that's also a good play probably. I'm holding them. I just turned 50 this year and I don't want to sell any properties. I mean, maybe like I said, one day you never know you would sell. The offers I've gotten, some have been pretty ridiculous, but then the problem has become, even if you sell the property, where am I going with the capital? Finding deals is extremely challenging in every market. I mean, even an office, which is the one nobody really talks about today, but they're still hard to find deals. And the benefits been generally my industrial leases expire a little bit quicker than one, two, three, four year kind of leases. And a lot of those guys want to move around sooner, whether they had 3000 feet, now they need six and need to move around. And I'm flexible with that. But the rents from where they were in 2020, beginning of 2020 to today are just across the board, probably double or more what I'm getting. So why sell? And I've owned them so long. I just have very low debt on them. I just leave them alone. Yeah. And you mentioned office. Are you looking at other asset classes as industrials too hot right now to buy anything? Retail seems to be a place to be. Are you looking at other asset classes? Have you ever invested in asset classes other than those two that you're focusing on now? I have. I've done some office projects and there are a lot of office would be my least favorite market to get into. What people don't understand about an office is like, I'm in an office right now. It works for me. That's great. 
But if I leave, the next tenant's going to want this wall down, this conference removed, and every so it becomes very expensive. The other problem with an office building is whereby I can control a lot of my expenses in shopping centers, the cost to, I have to keep the entire floor AC, whether I have one tenant on it or no, or 10 tenants. So the costs are so staggering. And if you get into some older buildings, the elevator maintenances and all that kind of stuff, it's just in the fire sprinkler systems. It's not my passion or my love. Multifamily, I think is fantastic. And I think it's one of the best and easiest ways for new investors to get started, but it was just never for me. And like I said, I wound up because I fell in love with it. I thought the building was so pretty. I started with industrial and I kept down that path. But when people ask me, I tell them probably the easiest way, if you want to buy a deal on your own, you could go buy a duplex or a triplex or a little six strip unit uh, apartments. It's a very easy point of entry and banks like to lend on those. But I don't do any multifamily either. I pretty much stick to what I know. It helps give us a really great synergy because we have so many tenants in that arena that whenever we get a vacant space, we already have thousands of tenants to send to that maybe they give us referrals. So it helps a lot. Talk a little bit about how you find underperforming properties. You've talked about you finding underperforming properties and then that's the value add as you make them performing again. So how do you find those? Is it just your broker relationships or are you finding them off market? What's the process? Well, it's a lot of process. I know there's just an audio tape, but the sides of my hair are all gray from all the work I got to put in. It's countless hours on the computer. It used to be more driving around, but that doesn't help. Now I always say I fly Google around because I can take a look on Google to see if I like a deal and you can kind of look at it and get your first glimpse. But you're right 100% when you said brokers. Anytime a broker calls to talk about a deal with me, I never want to be rude to these guys, even if I don't like the deal. So I bought a deal in April of this year from a broker who talked to me about a deal that I bought last year. And he was a young broker, a new broker to the business. And what he was showing me, I had no interest in. And I told him everything I like. He brought me another deal I wasn't so interested. And then finally, in about February of this year, he brought me two shopping centers, Macellar and Palm Beach, where I realized there was some value. And he said, they're not on the market. I'm not sure he's going to give me the listing, but he wants $14 million if you want to buy it. I said, sold, done. I never even met the guy. And then I was supposed to meet him after the closing, and we never got together. It's like, up until about three weeks ago, he finally said, I want to come to your office and meet. Never met the guy. But it was an off-market deal from being nice to a broker. Brokers have to know that you could get deals done. You're not going to retrade them. You're not going to play games and you have the financial wherewithal to close. Once brokers have that, they'll bring you a lot of deals. Okay. Interesting. So do you work with other operators to, you said you're vertically integrated. So you're, you're doing all the management. You're not working with a property manager or anybody else. It's just, you're the asset manager. You're the property manager. Everything is in-house. That's right. So we run current capital management here in Hollywood, Florida, and we have about 30 people in here. And we have the leasing team. We have the property managers in the office. We have the property managers in the field. We have a full accounting team. We don't do the accounting per se. We do the bookkeeping, that's all. And then it gets delivered to accountants. But we do everything in-house. And what's the advantage of that as compared to there's other operators who outsource specifically the property management. What do you think the advantages of having it in-house? Well, we do third-party management as well. And that's probably a little more than 50% of our portfolio. So I love when people outsource as well. But it's kind of about shooting myself in the foot and losing property management business. It's kind of like everybody knows nobody's going to take care of your stuff where your name is on the deed and your name is on the guarantee of a mortgage the way you will. So if you have the wherewithal and the team and the capability to manage it, you're going to be the best manager. You're going to care more about the tenant. You're going to care more about the rental collection than any third party could ever do for you. It's just the facts. Talk a little bit about the current economic conditions. There's all kinds of uncertainty because basically no one knows where interest rates are going. And I know you never 
really know where they're going. But when they've been consistently low for so long, this is a huge change. So how is that affecting your current deals that you're in? Do you have variable rate debt? Is that an issue? And how is it affecting you going forward with new deals? Well, you ask fantastic questions. Your listeners are lucky because <laughs> you ask great questions here. So I'm going to answer that in a couple of parts. I'll never do an adjustable rate loan. And to give you an example, I have a client who did, and they're more aggressive than me, obviously. And in January, they had some kind of quasi-redevelopment properties that were working with them. We're just a management company only. And when he took out the loan, he got very aggressive financing in January of this year at 6%. We are 11 months later. His interest rate is 12%. And he has a $9 million loan. So now the property is not cash flow performing. So now he's trying to scramble to refi to try and get a fixed rate loan. But now it's not as easy to get a loan as it was back then. But he wanted all that extra capital and he got aggressive versus putting more money down. And that's how we wound up in that bad position. I don't do that. But what I will tell you is the deal I did in April, we financed that deal at three and three quarters percent interest. This deal that we closed, actually I technically closed on Friday, but it went through on Monday. We closed this deal. It got as high as because the rate wasn't locked. It was 250 above the five-year treasury, which that means it's two and a half basis points above a five-year treasury. About a month ago, it was almost 7% what I was going to pay. Luckily, rates dipped down and came down quite a bit. So we locked in at 6.12%, but you're still almost two and a half points higher than where I was six months ago. However, if you look at historical interest rates, 6% is very, very cheap. And I don't buy real estate based on the interest rate. But people are going to have to get comfortable and understand that in our lifetimes, we may never see 3% again. And if you do, it's because something really bad happened. So 4 5 6% is still pretty cheap debt. When I first started buying, 10% was cheap debt. And it was coming down from 12 and 13. So got to get used to it. That's the thing. It's all relative. Like interest rates now are closer to normal than they've probably been in 20 years as far as historical norms. But it just feels like when the way you described it, it doubled. And so if you're an investor or a property owner, your expenses doubled because you're paying twice as much for your mortgage. So it's hard to wrap your head around that. But I think part of this, everyone's in a little bit of panic these days. And I think part of it is we need to realize we're not in trouble territory yet. If they double again from here, we might have some issues, but we're really just back to what might be normal. And it's still possible to make money at these interest rates, right? A hundred thousand percent correct. Yep. I mean, we just have to realize what happened for two years and the reason rates got there was because of COVID and because of lockdowns and the government got extremely aggressive. And a lot of people made a lot of money off that. But if you're going to look to go back to those days, I mean, I can't buy Apple as an IPO anymore either. So if you want to invest, you better get into the game that you're playing now because you're probably never going to see those deals again. That's well said. Get into the game that you're playing now because that's a key for sure. Actually, sorry, I had to pause. I had to write that down because that's such a good thing. You have to be playing the game that is available to you now. And right now, that's different than what it was before. And if you're not understanding that, you're not going to be successful. Like you are so consistent with retail and industrial. And I've been accused, rightfully so, of chasing the shiny object. If there's something new, I'm like, oh, I guess I better run and go check that out. So how do you stay so consistent? And what do you recommend to passive investors so that they can diversify among asset classes, but they aren't chasing just the shiny new thing. They're in quality asset classes. I look back at the guys that I have most respect for, whether it's in real estate or business, and we could go back to the one person I think everybody would always say, okay, that's the master, and it's Warren Buffett, and his protege, Charlie Munger, who run Berkshire Hathaway. And when they didn't want to buy tech stocks, because they said they didn't get it, and they didn't understand how you could buy a company that makes no money, 
They were laughed at and they told that this is the end of Berkshire Hathaway. Well, nobody was laughing in 2002, 3, 4, and 5, and, so, and still to this day. And they're famous for saying the same thing. People think they need to diversify into so many different things to hedge their risk. And what those guys say is, have a couple of things and watch them very, very carefully. It's very hard. No one's smart enough to pick every asset class, whether you're a developer, an investor, or even if you want to trade stocks. You can't own everything and really know what's going on. I would rather own two different types of asset classes, be it retail and industrial, and know them as best as I can. Is it possible for me to get into multifamily and office? Of course it is, but I'm diluting my skill set because I can't be great or excellent at everything. So I try to stay away from that. Just focus on what you love. I get that. And for an operator, that makes complete sense to me. Is it different for a passive investor? Because I'm never going to be an expert like you are in industrial or retail. I'm never going to be an expert like an operator in multifamily. But what I try to do is find partners that I can learn to know, like, and trust, and then rely on them to get me into quality deals that, of course, I will analyze, but I'll never analyze a retail deal with the same depth as you. So does it make sense, do you think, for a passive investor to maybe diversify a little bit more than, say, an operator would because we're not going to have that level of deep expertise as the operators do? Absolutely. If I was the passive investor, that's exactly the path I would go down. I wouldn't concern myself then with where I'm investing. If I said, I want to invest X amount of dollars, I want to bet on the best operator in the best market at the easiest times. So like today, I wouldn't want to bet, even if I met a sponsor who was great at managing class C office buildings, and he was a genius. I don't want to invest in that now because I think they're going to have a rough run. So yes, I would chase after where I thought was the hot market, just like you said, but I'd also make sure the sponsor was a great sponsor because if you're the investor, the only thing you got to get right, you got to believe that that's a good asset class and you got to believe in your sponsor is going to do the right thing and be able to perform. I, as the manager, I have to know a lot more. So I have to know how to operate these properties. As a sponsor, you just got to know where you're going to put your money and that's okay. So it's a very different thing. You're right. As an investor, I would look to, I look for the hot thing too. And so if people are just starting out in passive investing, and I look at it as a snowball that grows into a giant snowman or whatever analogy you want to use, how would you recommend to people that are just kind of in the beginning of their journey to get that snowball so that they can make perhaps their W-2 optional because they have other income streams? Or Can you give some advice for just how do you get going and get that snowball growing? You get going by get going. You just got to get in the game. You also have to get over the hurdle which is what I had to get over when I first started investing myself, which I got over very quickly, is that a lot of people think, so let's say you're going to put $100,000 into a deal and arguments take the sponsor is going to give you an 8% pref return. You say, I'm going to type $100,000 and get $8,000 back. I'd rather keep my 100. And I see that a lot because my 100 grand is that, well, maybe now you can buy a 10-year treasury. So it's almost halfway there, but you got to get over that mindset because the real estate changes. So like I said, the deal that I did in January 2020 for $14 million, we refinanced it and pulled out $14 million. We still had closing costs and improvements. So we returned 80% of the money to the investors. But because we came off that PREF at a much lower interest rate, the deal performs almost the same way. And very quickly, I would say in less than 12 months, we'll repay that balance. But they're still going to get a distribution forever. Guess what? three or four more years, I'm going to refinance that property again, because then I can refinance it towards value. And then they're going to get another big check. And then they're still going to get a quarterly estimated distribution each quarter with no money in the deal. And the only way to ever get to that passive cash flow is to get started. Even if it's 25,000, 50,000, whatever the sponsor asks for, you got to get in the game and you got to be patient. 
Yeah. And then you're basically talking about infinite returns when you get all your capital back and you're still receiving cash flow. And that is one of the ways I think that you really get that snowball going because now you have your capital back, you put it into another deal and you basically have two assets that are cash flowing with that $1 of capital you put in because you've gotten your capital back from the other one. So I think that's a great strategy. I'd like to switch. And I know you mentioned you have a book. I'd like to hear about your book. Thank you for asking me. Yeah. So what happened here with me is I've been doing this now for, like I said, over 25 years. And everybody would ask me about real estate. 99 people out of 100 asked about real estate just asked because they saw something on TV. And everyone wants to ask me about houses now because they skyrocketed. So now are they going to crash? I don't know. I'm not in the housing market. But when people would ask me questions on real estate, I found that they weren't asking exactly the right questions. And I started having interns come into my office from high school and college over the summer because so I wanted to get back and help these young guys and girls. And I was teaching them. And when I saw how moved these people were when they started to figure it out, because I don't believe the school system's teaching these kids anything about how to manage money. And these young kids, 17, 18, 19, 20 years old, are realizing, wow, I can actually get rich doing this if I start in my 20s. So from there, I started doing a lot of podcasts like your own. And people would call. I'd always say, free, call my office, email me, whatever you want. I'm happy to help everybody because I don't want anything in return. I just want to help. So from there, I decided I'm going to write a book as if I'm writing it to my interns who really virtually nothing about real estate, what they need to know, whether they want to invest in real estate, they want to buy REITs, they want to invest with sponsors. So I wrote a general book, but then because I read a lot, I said, the biggest turnoff I have in books is when I read a whole book and I get to the last couple of pages and it says, now I gave you this, but if you want more, you got to go to my mastermind and my boot camp, and that's $10,000 for step one. And I said, it gave me like an ugly feeling and I didn't feel good. And I said, I don't offer any of those services. But people don't know that. So I decided that I'm going to write a book and I can give 100% of the proceeds away to charity. I won't make $1 off the book. So when people read it, they're really getting 25 years of my experience, stories, how I got started, how I invested in all the different options. And it'll answer the questions. A lot of the great questions you asked here are already in my book too. So they could see it. There's like, if you know my intentions, I won't make any money, but I wrote a book that took me over a year to do. I probably have some good stuff in there for you. So I wrote a book called Keeping It Real on Commercial Real Estate. And you can get it anywhere, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target. It's available all over the place. And again, all I want to do is offer people help. In the book, just like I'll say on your podcast, people can feel free to call me at Current Capital, email me at todd at cc-reg.com, call my office. I'm happy to help anyone do their first deal. As long as they know that when they're successful, they got to pay it forward. And that's what the point of the book was. That's fantastic. We will put that book in the show notes so that people know where to go buy it. The last question I always ask is, what's a great podcast that you listen to? I listen to a lot of podcasts, and <laughs> they're all great in themselves. But I think one of the greatest things people who love real estate need to do is, I don't want to recommend a real estate podcast. You got to go outside real estate because excellent leadership and skills come from different people. So yes, you can listen to the greatest in real estate talk and you want to be in real estate, but take yourself outside. Listen to CEOs of medical companies or young guys who started up something. Even if it's something you're not even truly interested in, like I'm not interested in cryptocurrencies, but I like to figure out how these guys, what they did and how they became successful. So try and take yourself outside the real estate arena as well and listen to podcasts for other successful people. That's good advice right there. So you mentioned it, but can you mention it again? How can listeners get in touch with you if they want to learn more about you or your company? Anyone's free to call me anytime at my office. The number is 954-966-8181. And some people are more comfortable shooting an email. It's todd at cc-reg.com. Feel free to call me, email me with your questions. I'm happy to help you guys. 
many people tell you that I take plenty of time helping them. I have nothing to sell anybody other than I want you all to buy my book because I do want to be a bestseller. That part's true. There you go. <laughs> I think I'm there, but I have nothing to sell. I don't have a boot camp. I don't have a mastermind camp. I don't want anything, but it gives me a lot of good feelings. Like even yesterday, I had a young guy in my office who was 23, who was genius in high school and college, went to school, graduated top of his class and went to dental school because that's the path his parents wanted for him. And in one semester at dental school, the young guy had the guts to tell his family that well, you wanted my whole life, I'm not going to do it. And now he came into real estate and he became a real estate broker. And even though I have a broker license, I don't broker deals, but I've been working with this kid and the kid is so great and so talented and so nice. And I'm watching him change. And like, he's a young kid, he's 22 years old and he knows I read. He comes to my office yesterday to give me a present and brings me a book and thank me for the time. So when you're 50 and you can help a 21 year old, it's more valuable than any deal will ever be. Absolutely. That's great. That's an amazing story. Well, thank you so much for being a guest. This was fascinating. It was great talking to you, and we definitely appreciate your time. Likewise. You've asked great questions. I've truly enjoyed it. Have a great one. Thank you. You too. Do you love coffee? Have you ever wanted to invest directly in the coffee industry? You can invest now in the number one largest coffee producer in the country of Colombia, the Green Coffee Company. Headquartered in the U.S., they are now Colombia's largest coffee producer and have opened their $100 million Series C funding round to accredited investors. The Green Coffee Company has over 7 million coffee trees and is on track for a 2026 sale or IPO projecting an 11x ROI for investors. Discounts are available for early funding, but there's limited capacity available. To invest, visit legacy-group.co and click the Current Offerings tab. That's the Current Offerings tab at legacy-group.co. Self-storage has been one of the fastest growing real estate sectors for four decades straight. With inflation on the rise, it may be the hedge you're looking for. Spartan Investment Group identifies low-risk, value-add investment opportunities in commercial real estate. Their private debt and equity opportunities offer stable monthly payments and predictable returns. And since they put every investment through a 700-plus point due diligence checklist, you can invest with confidence. To learn more, visit spartan-investors.com. That was a great conversation with Todd. It was an interesting start. I've never talked to anybody, I don't think, that started in real estate investing for their own account and bought an industrial property. Everybody I know dips their toe in with a single family home or something. So it's just an interesting start. And he stayed focused. He has decided he's going to stay in Florida, mainly South Florida. So he's on in one market that he knows really well. And then his whole career has been basically two asset classes. So I think there's a big advantage to the focus that you get from an operator that is one or two asset classes, one or two markets, just knows their stuff. And it's just such an advantage. Now we're seeing a lot of operators splinter and go into multiple asset classes. And that's fine as long as they're hiring people that are experts in all of those. But sometimes it's nice to just find someone who's in a niche that they've been comfortable with and they've been in it for years and that's all they're going to do. So you know what you're getting. So I thought that was pretty interesting. And that was his mantra, right? Stick with what you know. Don't branch out. Don't chase the shiny object. He's more talking about as an operator, but as a passive investor, you have to do a little bit of both. You don't want to be crazy about chasing the shiny object, but because you're not going to be a super expert in any one asset class, it's okay to rely on the expertise of others. That's why we spend so much time and effort finding the best sponsors, the best operators, so that we can focus on that as our expertise. Our expertise is picking great partners and then we don't really care what those partners are investing in. I mean, of course we do, but our main focus is 
let's build up our expertise in picking the right partner and then giving the partner the ability to pick that asset class for us or that deal. And then we'll kind of look at the top of it. We're not going to dig in and re-underwrite the deal. We're going to make sure we understand it and we're comfortable with the partner. That's kind of how I look at it. And then the most powerful thing I think that I got out of it, that episode with Todd is when he said, you got to get into the game that you're playing. And these things that hit me sometimes like this are so obvious, but you don't think of it when you're in the day-to-day grind. But if you're going to be an investor, you got to get into the game and learn how to be an investor, whatever that is. If you're going to be an operator, you got to get into the game you're playing and figure that out. And so it's one of those obvious things that sometimes when you hear it from somebody else, it just kind of recenters you and you're like, yeah, I got to play the game that I'm playing instead of some other game. And it just makes sense to me. I also like how Todd's sense of giving back. He's been successful. He's had a good run. And I'm sure he's had plenty of people that have helped him along the way. And so he's taking the attitude of I'm going to pay it forward and help the young intern in my company. He's going to write a book and donate the proceeds to charity. So I just think that's great. When you have a spirit of giving, that's a good thing. There's nothing ever bad about giving of your time and expertise. So I appreciate having Todd on. And of course, as we do with all of our operators, we will follow them and see what they get into. That's all we have for today. We'll see you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.